Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sean Fielding, Director of Innovation, Impact, and Business at the University of Exeter. Each year, Sean and his team work on about 200 projects worth around 80 million pounds. He and his team help partners undertake R&D projects, access skilled people, and generate innovation. They manage strategic alliances, contract education programs with businesses, spin-outs, student entrepreneurship, licensing, and economic development. They are also responsible for major innovation initiatives, such as the Exeter Science Park. Sean was the chair of the Set Squared Management Board, recognized as the world's number one university business incubator. Until recently, Sean was the chair of Praxis Oral, the UK's National Association for Knowledge Exchange Professionals, and a board member of the Global Alliance of Technology Transfer Professionals, known as ATTP, which promotes the RTTP worldwide standard. Previously, Sean was the Vice President of the Association of European Science and Technology Transfer Professionals, ASTP, and a member of the Board of the Heart of the Southwest Local Enterprise Partnership and of the Exeter Science Park. Sean has had several director-level roles at the University of Exeter. He previously worked for the national university bodies where he set up and led joint ventures for commercializing and marketing national and international HE services. In addition, he has been the managing director and director of several companies. Sean studied languages at the University College London and is a registered technology transfer professional. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Sean. Well, thanks, Lisa, for having me. It's uh, great to be here with you and all your listeners. Well, it's great to have you, Sean. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. And Sean, generally, I like to start the podcast off with my guests asking the same question, and it's basically about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up at Exeter and at the university? Yes, I'm, I'm not a scientist, Lisa, which I think has, has always been a, uh, an asset, actually, um, in, some, in some ways. Um, my, um, my background is in languages. And um, and I do think that something to do with being able to translate um, from one language to another has turned out to be quite useful in this in this job. Um, so before I started being involved with universities, I was um, actually in marketing, and so did a number of projects um, uh, based in London, and um, uh, and and then eventually found myself doing projects with universities. Thought well, this is very interesting, and um, and ended up though um, being drawn into some commercial projects um, between um, universities and partners, and I ended up not doing the marketing but actually running the businesses. Um, perhaps I had something, uh, some sort of skill there. Um, I don't know, and ended up in the end working with the um, the organisation that represented universities in the UK. So in terms of running businesses and ventures for them. And then eventually I, as everyone does, um, got bored with London and um, <laughs> decided to, uh, uh, to move to the countryside. And so um, uh, Exeter is in the uh, southwest of England. And it's uh, actually one of the major tourist areas for the, uh, for the UK. And the university, uh, University of Exeter, had not uh, a strong history at all in working with partners, working with business, um, doing anything commercial. And they needed someone to lead that. So um, I um, put my hand up for that and, um, and rashly they chose me. And um, <laughs> so I was able to start with establishing um, for the first time a team in the university to build partnerships um, with business and with other kinds of partners, actually, not academic partners, but to all the other kinds. Um, and that started off with just me and a, um, 
and a, and a secretary, really. Oh, wow. um, and now, um, and now I think I think the total number of people in our team is 175. Oh um, my gosh! But um, I but that's not full time. So those are you know people. Um, so you can see how it's become a much more important thing for the university during the 25 years that I've been uh, working um, here. I would say so with, uh, you know, that many people. And, and I think that's a good segue to ask you, um, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with the innovation impact and business team there at the university, can you tell us a little bit more about it and what all these different people do? <laughs> yes, at some point I'll find out. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think the title is quite interesting, um, Innovation, Impact and Business. So we are, um, we're supporting um the whole university in in its act- activities, which lead to innovation um, in the community with businesses, with partners um, that lead to impact, and so a real making a real difference um, to organisations, to individuals, to businesses, and to regions because that's important. Um, and then and then business um, captures that broader relationship that we have with businesses. So um, so overall. We're working with about 2,000 businesses a year, and they are um, a whole range of different kinds of organizations, from um, new startups that we've created to um, uh, ventures that are developing in our region that want to work with us and want to have access to research and and facilities and those sorts of things, to um, student enterprises that are uh, developing, and we're responsible for all the student um, entrepreneurship. Um, all of the research collaborations with businesses, and our university has about a hundred million pounds worth of research um, activity each year. So, so it's, we're a Russell Group University. A hundred million is in the the low end for those large um, research group uh, research universities, but um, but quite significant in terms of most university size in the UK. So, about a hundred million of research income, probably about. 60 to 70 million pounds worth of that is in partnership with businesses or other other organizations. So it's quite a significant chunk. Um, And then we're also responsible for all of the um, education provision with businesses. Um, And in the UK, we run um, things called degree apprenticeships, which are people um, going to university while they're employed by a company and um, and developing their skills um, at the same time. And uh, we, we run all that. So the, the philosophy is that all of the partners, the businesses that we work with across the university should have the same, the same consistency of service. We should be able to cross-engage with those um, partners and, um, and we, should, we should be able to um, draw in our academics into a much bigger group of external partners. And we all know that the hard bit about building relationships with organizations is starting off. Once you've, once you've got a relationship, it's a lot easier to, um, to then add more things to it. And it turns out that um, having a good set of relationships with organizations that are buying research or, or developing research, and having a good set of relationships which are um, with organisations that are developing education for their staff, you know, providing um, education services, puts us in a really good position to do spin-out companies to help our students with entrepreneurship to get our students into jobs, and uh, and actually the normal job of being a, a commercialisation manager is so much easier when you've got this huge network of people that you can call on. So actually, you know, it, it feels like it's, that's, a lot, that's a lot of work, it's a lot of activity, but it's, it all ends up adding value to each element of the, um, of the proposition that we have. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I wanted to ask you, I know I saw something on your website about an engagement strategy that you and your team have been in the middle of implementing. And that strategy started in 2017, and I believe it's concluding this year. And I was wondering if you could tell us that a little bit about that, that strategy, what it is and, and how the implementation's gone. Yeah. So that's, um, about, as you say, six, five, six years ago, um, we decided to try and take our business partnering activity up to the to a next level so we'd already been doing quite a lot um, our total turnover each year was about 30 million or so um, 30 million pounds about uh, about five years ago 
And and the aim was to build really strong relationships with um, about no more than 20 major organizations um, to, to develop a really strong um, regional outreach and partnering program, um, not just with businesses in our region, but with all of the um, uh, the agencies and, uh, and and government bodies um, to to really boost our um, spin out activity um, and to and to and to on on the back of this grow the um, student entrepreneurship. Um, so all of that that's a you know four or five strand program over five years. Um, in the back of our minds was. Uh, obviously, creating lots of opportunities and, and bringing in lots more academics into this overall approach, and sort of hoping to change the culture um, a bit in some of our uh, in some of our departments. We know that you know you'll never change the culture in all of the departments, but some of them will will really develop. So um, there was a sort of top level indicator, which was could we move from thirty million a year to um, 70 million a year so over five years so it was a, it was more than doubling of the of the total and um you know last year we reached 80 million so actually as a proxy for activity you know income is one it's not the only one so having we we made it over the five years to double the income which was great but but i think more importantly um the numbers of academics involved has probably trebled over that time and and we're at the position now where all of the pretty much all of our departments now have a um a business engagement plan or partner engagement plan um you know whether it's the um you know people responsible for history and heritage or people doing life sciences you know everybody's now got a a plan for business engagement, and that's um, that's. I think that's one of the things I'm proudest of that people are actually thinking about what we call knowledge exchange in the UK, um, not as something that's just about commercial activity for a few diehard um, <laughs> entrepreneur academics, but actually it's something that enables the academics to do their job more effectively by by through partnerships and opening up opportunities for students and and all of those kinds of things so it's a much it's a much more engaged approach to that job of of commercialization than i think we've we used to think of very interesting and and do you think um since that uh strategy is going to be coming to an end this year are are you looking at implementing a, another long term strategy or are you going to kind of take some time and and think about what's happened the last few years and and consider various options no i think um we we've got a new vice chancellor at exeter who is very keen on um all of the work with businesses and um, and, and all this activity so i think we're going to keep growing um, from strength to strength, or at least I hope, you know, there's, I think one of the next strands will be a, a major, um, a major brand that we collect everything around. Because I think often you get to the, this sort of point and you think, well, I, I, I know everything that's going on within our own team. I can, I can influence that. But actually, once you start thinking about this broader piece, you begin to say, well, actually, there's people, um, who are dealing with um, careers advice for students. There's people dealing with um, engaging with our alumni um, in businesses. Um, there's people doing all kinds of things with partnerships that are not part of my team. And what we're now looking at is, you know, branding the whole thing. Um, and again, that means consistency and, um, and quality. And so it, I think it, it will keep growing. Awesome. That We look forward to watching it grow. It should be very, very interesting. And um, Sean, I wanted to turn back. I know we've talked, there's a lot of activity, uh, a lot of people on your team. So I was curious if you could tell us about maybe some of the programs and other initiatives that your team has in place and that it supports there at the university. Yeah, I think um, I think one of the things that we are, um, uh, I think, quite proud of is our regional um, programs. So within our uh, our region, which I said is a, is a very um, 
kind of unscientific area, if you like. Um, it's not a it's not an area of big cities. Um, it's quite um, rural, and um, our part of the country is one of those areas. It's quite a long way from London. So um, even though actually. You know, Exeter is only about two hours from London by train. People get very frustrated at sitting on a train for two hours even. Um, so um, I know that many of your listeners might be surprised by, by that. They may be travelling much bigger distances. But um, but we feel a bit peripheral here. So part of our job has been to try and grow a scientific capability and a entrepreneurial capability in our in in our region. And, uh, and we've done that in a number of different um, areas. For, for one, the in our city, Exeter, um, is the, uh, the UK meteorological office. So the people that worry about the weather are all based in, in, in Exeter. Uh, and because of that, um, and because of our focus, we have attracted a lot of um, climate change scientists and people interested in the environment. And actually, Exeter as a city is one of the most uh, science-intensive cities for climate change and for the environment. It's a real major focus. So, um, so one of the things that we did was set up a um, a program to, in partnership with our with the Met Office to provide opportunities for small businesses to um, develop their skills in big data, for example, big data with the environment. So, big data in the environment. Um, becomes a major focus for us and um, and we've established what we call an impact lab um, at our science park which we also established um, which is now attracting a lot of small business um, specialists to come to Exeter to provide support to these small businesses and lots of small businesses in this area are now growing so we've now got a really strong um, AI and uh, data um, capacity technology that we didn't really have um there's also another area which i think is quite surprising which is um in cornwall which so we're in devon and there's also cornwall which we also have a campus in um these are the two county areas cornwall has been identified as a host for space uh, travel for horizontal launch space travel so um launching in a uh, on a plane um, with a with a vehicle on it and and that creates a, a lot of opportunity for us to draw in our expertise and it's surprising how you make these connections Cor- Cornwall is a real really strong area for hard rock mining for oh, example wow. um, but it turns out that being an expert in hard rock mining um, as we are at our Campbellbourne School of Mines turns out to be very useful when you're helping people work out how to live in space because these people are working two miles down underground you know in in areas that are very um, harsh uh, very tricky environments and so that sort of skill combined with um, lots of our um, life sciences and healthcare skills around surviving in tricky environments and environment and human health turns out to be really useful for this for the space um, industry. So I think you know you can see a couple of areas there where you know the university strengths help to build a a new sector of activity in our in our region, which of course then helps our students get employed and um, and academics find new partners, and the whole thing ends up being a, a really useful circular um, and adding value approach. So, Sean, I wanted to ask us, um, could you tell us maybe some things that your team is doing to engage and influence policymakers in the UK? Yeah, so policy um, making over the last two years, um, I think probably around the world, has has had a difficult time um, because of COVID. And, um, and I think, you know, for many organization just getting through and uh, keeping going has been the key thing and and actually i'm very pleased that the that our partnerships with business have not slowed down during the during the pandemic if in fact if anything we've got stronger relationships now um, which which i think is really good but there are a number of strands um in the uk which we've been very anxious about um one one is of course um the whole the whole situation with brexit and our relationship with Europe has been very strong, uh, very strong research relationships, um, lots and lots of European students. So um, trying to make sure that our 
research programs with European partners could continue has been a really strong focus for us. And clearly, the um, you know you only do research because you want something eventually to emerge from it. Um, so it then has a um, has an effect on our. Uh, uh, on on our work on impact, um, so so that Brexit area has been really um, crucial. Uh, the other area has been important has been what in the UK they describe as um, leveling up, which is trying to deal with the fact that a lot of the research strength and commercial power in the UK is concentrated in London, and it's there isn't enough that then spreads across to to the regions. So. We have done a lot of work trying to make sure that the UK recognises these um, sector strengths that there are in different parts of the uh, of the country, and, and ours particularly is around environment. You know, we want to see the southwest of England, uh, particularly uh, Exeter, being recognised as a, a global hub for um, environmental um, R and D and skills. So given, Sean, that you're on the southwest of England, you said like a two-hour train ride from London, you referred to you being on the periphery. I wanted to ask um, what it's like in terms of securing venture funding and capital for some of the startups that come out of the university there. It's a lot easier um, when you're in London. Yeah, I would imagine. Or in the surroundings of London. Um, And it's just like in the U.S. You know, it's a lot easier if you're in um, uh, if you're in California or in uh, Boston or somewhere, you know, where there's a track record. Um, People will cluster around the um, around the areas of strength. So our solution to that is the set squared arrangement. So we are partners with five universities and us. So it's now six universities who pool their activity around um, spin outs and spin ins. So companies that are working in the region that are associated with us. Now, that means that at any one time across six universities, we have about three to 400 ventures in development and that are looking for um, venture funding. Now, that is a very significant portfolio. And of course, not all of them are looking for money at that moment. You know, they're not all growing at the same speed. But at any you know, almost any time somebody comes to us and says, you know, um, what are what are looking like your top prospects at the moment? We've got 20 to 30, you know, opportunities to put in front of them. And, and we typically take those to London. So we're taking them to where the venture funders are. And what happens over time is that those venture funders say, well, that's interesting. I joined in with this um, I heard all about your ventures at this event in London. Um, I'd like to know a bit more about some of the ones that other ones you've got. And then you find that those venture um, funders then begin to get interested in the Southwest region or get interested in Exeter. You know, I saw you've got some really interesting AI companies. Have you got any more? You know, so the set squares have been really, really useful to us in enabling us to pool our resources and pool the opportunities. And that has really, I mean, generally we will get at any of our London events, we get 200 venture funders. Oh, attending. wow. That's a that's a really good number. Yeah. You know, some of them are really significant scale. Um, some of them are, um, you know, large scale angel funders. Um, but, you know, you need that range as well because the organizations we have are, um, are, are in different stages. And actually sometimes you can even, um, because the ventures that we have, are a mixture of um, established ventures looking for venture funding. That they're science-based businesses, but some of them are established but looking for venture funding. So they've already got their track record. They've already got their their um, teams associated with them. And some of them are just starting out. It means that you can bring them all together as and they they sort of rub off on the other. You know, the the established ventures get a little little bit more edgy and cool because they're dealing with you know these young entrepreneurs that are coming along and the young entrepreneurs feel a bit more established than they are because they're they're associated with these companies that are already succeeding so it for the venture funders it doesn't look like there's a whole load of really green companies coming forward that they they don't know what they're doing because it's a really interesting mix of of ventures and then we also provide um training uh, lots of training for the people running these ventures 
so they know how to deal with the venture funders. Um, and it's, there's a lot of preparation that goes on uh, that we all do collectively. We don't have to do our, you know, our, each university on its own would not have enough ventures to justify it. But bringing everybody together really does um, make it work well. So, Sean, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you about metrics. Can you tell us how many invention disclosures, patent filings, royalty income, and things like that that your office had in the last year or maybe the last few years? Yeah, and as I have said, the this area of um, commercialization isn't our top priority. You know, it's a it's a key um, it's one of the key ways in which we're judged. Um, in the end, because you really want to um, have some spin-out ventures, you want to have some income coming in as part of your portfolio. But but we're looking at that bigger picture. So whereas um, we, we are each year around about £80 million worth of activity coming in across the piece, um, I don't think there's been a year in the last five years when, um, when the income is, from commercialization has been more than a million pounds. So it's an 80th of our of our total. Uh, and of course, occasionally you will get a really great success and, it, you know, maybe you'd get 20 million pounds or maybe you know, it could get more than that. But, um, you know, on average, you know, we, we are not expecting more than about a million um, a year. Um, but that would be a combination of royalty and share sales. So, you know, royalty generally is um obviously depending on the year but it's it, it wouldn't be more than um a quarter of a million a year probably um maybe maybe three or four hundred thousand you know in a good year so and that's partly because we we have less life sciences oh research, i see okay um, in exeter than in others so that environmental focus really strong um engineering focus really so you tend not to have that ready market for you know license um, uh, arrangements. So, you know, it's one of these real examples of where a university tailors its activity to fit its interests, not trying to fit all together. So, uh, and disclosures, um, those kinds of commercial disclosures are not what really what we're being judged on. But each year, I it's not more than about 70 or 80 um, commercial ideas, you know, being disclosed. So at any time, my team is probably working on, in a serious way, about 50 or 60 commercial ideas. And in the usual run of things, um, probably 10% of them will turn into something really worth exploiting. So each year, probably about half a dozen um, spin-out ventures. Um, and some of them, you know, quite more significant than others. You know, some of them will be more like um, consultancy activities than, than spin-outs. So, Sean, switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you what you think's most important in managing innovations to give them the greatest opportunity for success. It's um, yeah, it's, it's one of the key questions, isn't it? The the thing about innovations, and, and by innovations, I mean um, people wanting to develop new things. That's you know, that's really what we're talking about here. Um, and usually, they're things in partnership with other people. So it's People wanting to develop new things in partnership. So um, the critical thing with that is that everybody knows what they're getting into. And quite often you find that um, you find that either the academic group that's trying to do something doesn't quite understand how much effort is required to achieve the thing. And then sometimes, quite often, you find that the partner they're working with, whether it's a venture funder or a or a business, large business or a spin-out business or whatever it is, um, doesn't quite understand what it means to be working with a partner in that way. And and constantly there's a there's our job usually is to manage manage that relationship. You know, bring the people together in a way that both of them feels that they are able to achieve what they want to achieve, and that at the end of that process, both of them has got something they could never have had on their own. That that's the that's the really critical thing, and and I think of that um, 
it's a kind of business development approach. You know, you, you both of you on your own can't achieve something. And when you come together, you can achieve amazing things. But you didn't know that until you started to have the conversation. And so often people are coming at this in a um, with a kind of um, win-lose um, approach or an expectation of something will happen in a very particular way. And, and you have to say, no, no, this is about innovation. We don't know how this is going to turn out, you know, but, but what we do know is that things often turn out much better than you thought, <laughs> you know? but, but it's not often something you can buy very easily. You don't know at the beginning, you know, what you're going to get. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a good segue. I wanted to ask you about external partners, whether they're corporate partners or the government, and uh, if you could provide some examples of some relationships that Exeter has with such partners. I think there's a couple I would give. Um, and one um, it, it, you know, may be familiar to the U.S. audiences is J.P. Morgan where we are doing, you know, from the, from the UK side, we were doing all of the um, leadership and uh, management development training for JP Morgan. And that was through these degree apprenticeship programs, um, which was, um, it's, a, it's a UK government arrangement. Um, you know, the, it, it means that the cost of the degree program is covered by the government, effectively, or covered, well, covered by the company, but the, the government covers the the cost of that so you you need some very serious partners to work on that because it's a significant commitment from from their side to release people who are you know 18 19 year olds going to do a degree and they are effectively employees but they are then released to do this um training program and that's been very that's been very exciting and and jp morgan uh, have several hundred people now on our program um, through the University of Exeter Business School, but now um, they're now they like the program so much that the um, the conversation now is about um, well could we develop that kind of approach um, with um, with people from J P Morgan in the U S where it's not a supported scheme from the government it's actually it just seems like a really sensible thing to do. So could we try and make that expand now? You know that if that if we were able to make that work, that's a very significant would be a new way of thinking about how you um, how you train people in uh, in 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 multinational businesses. Uh, the other example I give is um, is our local um, or regional uh, water company. In the UK, we we have. Um, uh, companies that are responsible for producing the water and managing um, all the waste and, and what have you. And, and our one has been working with us on a number of projects for a number of years. Um, and we decided that it would perhaps be a good idea if we started to actually plan this rather than um, each year saying, well, have you got anything that needs researching? Um, and, uh, and people thinking, uh, well, maybe I have, maybe we could do something. Actually plan it in advance. So We've now got to a position where we're where we just cut the first sod on um, a building that we are establishing between the two two of us on the university campus um, to be a joint research centre for the next twenty five years. Oh, that's now, awesome! That's probably a hundred and fifty million pounds initiative over that period, and actually is the only research water research centre of of its kind in the UK. So, you know, that's a you know, turning what was an ad hoc series of projects into a 25-year relationship. Um, and it's not been straightforward because each of us come at this in a quite a different way and, you know, with different expectations. So that whole thing I was just talking about, how you draw people together with different expectations into a shared understanding, um, you know, can be great. If you can make it work, and uh, you know, it was just—it was great at the end of last week. Um, you know, around the uh, at the campus, you know, launching the start of a new building. Uh, you know, it was just—you uh, know—it was great to feel these things becoming concrete. So I think, Sean, that's a great segue for me to ask you about some of your team's biggest success stories in terms of successful technologies, startups, things like that. I think there's two or three I would draw on. As I said, we have about. Um, 
about five spin-outs a year. But um, I'll start with actually the first license arrangement that we did um, some years ago, which was actually in the humanities. It's um, geographical humanities. So um, someone who was who was a, a specialist in maps, and and it turns out had had developed a, a facility to understand um, areas of the UK that were owned by or were associated with the church. Um, seems an odd and very um, peculiar thing to uh, need to know about. But it turns out that when you want to buy a house, one of the things that solicitors need to check when you buy a house, that part of your land isn't owned by the church. Oh, wow. Um, because if it turns out that part of your land is owned by the church, you then owe it some money and you have to pay it. Um, and this is stuff that goes back a thousand years. You know, there are these things that have built up over, over time. And, um, and so it's one of the normal searches that you have to do in order to buy a house. So what we ended up doing was um, yeah, licensing the rights of this, um, these, these maps and things to um, an agency that now provides services to lawyers. Um, every time you need to buy a um, house, you have to use these old you know, historical maps. So um, as, a, as a sort of first example of something talking about the kind of endless heritage of the UK um, and how you apply it to commercialization, I think it's quite a good little idea. That's a really neat one. That's a very unusual one that I've never heard of before. So I think that's really creative. Yeah. A second one I want to talk about because it's it, it's a kind of global story. We were pleased that it ended up having a local, locally good outcome. And this was a, a company that had been established by one of our academics um, with our help, which um, effectively turned photographs of things um, into 3D CAD models. So you could do a, a photograph and it would automatically turn it into a CAD model without having to get somebody to actually do the all the work and, and make it all, all um, uh, you know, all right for manufacture. And, uh, and that was, you know, they assumed what the, the use for that would be, um, you know, reverse engineering things or, um, you know, trying to, you know, just make things quicker and easier. Um, it turned out one of the key uses for it was around producing tailored prosthetics for um, for people because you would you know photograph the limb you know automatically you could create the thing. Um, anyway, this um, this company uh, started selling its software uh, all around the world and has sold it to all all kinds of different companies, but including health related companies. And eventually, it was bought by a U.S. software company and. Uh, for a quite significant um, sum, and normally what happens in the UK is um, you you do very well, you establish your company, and then a big US company comes and buys it out. Yeah, and then and then we get a lot of uh, concern from the UK government that um, you know all of these ideas are disappearing out of the country, and we say, well, you know, why don't you help by making it easier to um, provide venture capital and that sort of thing? But um, in this case. Although the U.S. company bought the ideas, um, they retained the company in Exeter. They grew the company in Exeter, and they also um, effectively enabled the the academic to remain with the university as a professor. So, I thought, you know, that was part of the discussions that we had with them, and I thought it was very. Um, you know, I was very pleased that we were able to grow something that could have left the country and actually stayed. Now, obviously, the technology is in that bigger company and around, but the, the group of people doing that work has now grown significantly, three or four times the size of where it was, and um, has helped with that whole thing about Exeter being a place that knows about data and AI and that. And the final one um, is a new venture, which we are in the process that we just raised some um, funding for it, um, which is um, all about um, how to make sure that your skin rejuvenates, uh, particularly your skin, but actually all cells. Um, and if this company succeeds, and there's quite a lot of interest in this company, we could all find that we end up not just looking younger, but actually getting younger as we get older, which will be quite an exciting new development. 
It's like Benjamin Button type of uh, technology exactly. there, right? Yeah, but but the right way around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the definitely the other way around. So, yeah. oh, that's pretty awesome. We will have to keep our eye out for that one. So, um, well, Sean, with great success also comes challenges. So, I wanted to ask you, what are your team's two biggest challenges? You're only going to give me two. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, I think the. The main challenge that I think all of us in the um, in this world of tech transfer, commercialization, knowledge exchange have is is the question of expectations. I often tell my team when they when they say to me, you know, this is really hard. You know, um, surely there's a better way of doing this. I said, well, if it wasn't hard, you probably wouldn't have a job. You know, there's a lot of different parts you have to bring together to make something work. So the expectations are always very high. People don't see the complexity um, and therefore think it's pretty easy to go and do this kind of thing. It's a bit I always think about it, it's a bit like marketing. You know, everybody, if if they're not in marketing, everyone thinks it's really easy to do marketing. You know, oh, surely I could do that. You know, my my 10-year-old son could do a better you know, publication than you just produced. And it turns out that actually good marketers make a significant difference, a really significant difference. And and when you see it, you think, oh, yeah, okay, my 10-year-old son couldn't have done anything like that. And it's a bit like that with commercialization, I think. There's there's a lot of people who think it's really easy. And it turns out to be uh, really very, very uh, difficult. And the second thing I think is, it's part of the same thing, and that's the the people that are involved in knowledge exchange are some of the most creative and um, resilient and um, uh, and hardworking people that you could you know want to come across. But the time it takes sometimes to deliver an outcome. Um, sometimes is very discouraging for them. So you've got to have a lot of patience in this game. And it's it can be a real challenge. And that you think, you know, you become like an entrepreneur yourself. You know, you're trying to get this thing to happen. You've got a lot of things on your plate at the same time. And if only one or two of them would come off this year, you know, then um, you could feel happy. And if it doesn't come off, it feels very discouraging. So there's a lot of people who are um, doing exactly the right things and and finding that it's not, you know, things aren't just knitting together. And so we have to do a lot of, you know, reassuring of people. So there's expectations on ter- in the terms of your customers and there's expectations really in terms of the people who are doing the job. And both of them would like it to be easier than it is. And, and you know, and it's not easy. So... I think as managers and leaders in this area, we have to spend a lot of our, a lot of time reassuring people on both sides as to um, you know what what's needed to succeed and have they got it? And it's just it's just that time hasn't you know there hasn't been enough time or there's not enough luck or you know there are a number of things. My advice is always it will come good. Um, you just sometimes it takes longer than you think. Sean, I wanted to switch gears and ask you about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Specifically, does the university there have any programs to help encourage and assist women and other traditionally underrepresented inventors and entrepreneurs? And if you could talk about those in a little bit of detail. Yeah, so we do. um, We have programs both for our students and for our academic staff. And um, both of them really involve creating spaces for female entrepreneurs uh, and, and also for creating champions and role models for them. And and it's surprising um, how just making that effort does make a difference. And um, I remember one point with, um, with Set Squared, we were looking at the data and um, we were feeling quite pleased with ourselves because 13% of the, um, of the entrepreneurs going through the program were, uh, were not white and male. Um, and and then we said to ourselves, that doesn't seem like much to be pleased of, really, does it? Um, and um, so we started a, a, a series of things in each of the universities, which were which were tailored for each university because each one was different. And I think we are now at about forty five percent. So it's still 
not 50%. It's still not 51 or 2%. Um, it's still, we still have more men. Um, it's, it's not so many white men now, which is, um, which is good, um, but significantly more female entrepreneurs. Um, and, and actually, one of the things I have, I think is probably true in many areas, is there have always been more people who have faced challenges um, who are successful entrepreneurs. And, and we found that all along, whether it's physical challenges or, 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 or mental challenges, um, you know, people developing particular ways of making something happen because they can't do it or, um, or, or, or apps to support uh, mental health or whatever it might be. Those communities often have had entrepreneurs because they just had to be in order to make something happen. Whereas um, those areas where they just needed to see other people doing it to be successful, um, I think is really great. In fact, one of the um, uh, one of the groups of students I was working with last year has now just launched a product um, to support knowledge exchange. So I, oh, I don't know whether that's, a, whether that's a good idea or not, but, um, <laughs> uh, since they may have based it on some of my advice, but, um, <laughs> but it's good to see you know, groups of people coming through. And and certainly in terms of our team of, you know, knowledge exchange people, our knowledge exchange community in the university, it's at least three quarters female. Um, and there's something about being able to communicate effectively with people and being able to ask questions and be curious, which somehow, it somehow feels that women can do that really well and in some cases much much better than men and so, so i you know we have a large team of people but uh, you know a significant proportion of them are female so switching gears again sean i i wanted to ask you what organizations are you and your team involved in things like praxis oral les autumn things like that and, and what value do you think they add yeah so we are obviously members of praxis oral um you know i was personally quite closely associated with Praxis Oral, um, I still am, and, um, and also our, the European um, network, which is ASTP, the Association of Science and Technology Professionals for, for Europe. And, you know, through them, you know, we know Autumn very well. You know, we tend to use the, the Praxis Oral and the ASTP courses, um, which are very, very good. And, um, and we think it adds a huge amount of value, not just in um, learning the skills, which are obviously really important, but in terms of building a network, um, it's surprising how many people think they're on their own, you know, in trying to do this work. And, uh, and, then, and then they meet another group of people just like them when they go on a course and suddenly find that, um, that, you know, life is a lot easier, you know, because they've now understood that they're not the only ones trying to make something impossible happen. So I think they're really good. Um, LES, um, we have less because we do less in the way of licensing. Well, I also wanted to ask your view on credentialing, things like registered tech transfer professional, RTTP, and certified licensing professional. Um, do you have a view on it and whether or not you think it makes a difference? I think it's really important at the stage we're at in our um, community at the moment. I think there are a number of, um, there are lots of young people coming through who um, want to be able to demonstrate that they've met um, a, a standard. Um, and not everybody can have a world-beating deal um, to um, you know, to wave at, at people that, but they're doing their job really well. And there's also something about um, as more and more people are involved in this industry, um, the customers want to know that the people they're dealing with know how to do the thing that they're doing. So I am a big fan of RTTP, um, and I've been quite heavily involved in trying to um, structure that and and broaden its interest beyond tech transfer into partnering and leadership and you know other sorts of things um leading knowledge transfer initiatives um and i think it's i think it's critical and, and all around the world you know because of my work on attp i see those um national associations of knowledge exchange people from all around the world all wanting the same thing which is some way of recognizing the really great people whether there's only 100 people in that country that do that or whether there's 5000 it's still the same desire to be able to prove that you are good at your job. And I think that's what RTTP does. And I think there is a case for next level RTTP, 
Um, we've introduced candidate RCDP for people who are just on the pathway, and I think there's a next level um, uh, interest as well. So I think um, there's 600, over 600 people in the world with this now, and I think it's um, it's growing and growing. So I, I I think it will have a big future. Sean, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests if they could have any three wishes granted for their office or a vision realized, what would that be? <laughs> yeah, I think probably the vision for me is to is to be able to know which of the which of the two thousand projects we're working on each year are going to be a success. Because if you knew which of them were going to be a success, you could put all your effort behind those projects. And I and I think that one of the big challenges that we've got all of us in our community is you have to kiss a lot of frogs um, before you find a prince. And so that. Um, if you knew in advance, if you gave me the uh, you know crystal ball that said this is the one, then I could put lots of resource um, behind it and get there much more quickly, and I would feel much more confident about about the whole thing. The second, I think, is what what everybody in a university wants is um, huge benefactors that will put resources into early stage activity, whatever it is, you know, because you need such a broad spread of that sort of activity happening. Um, and you often can't afford to fund everything, but actually quite a lot of those things could turn into really good things. So so people who are really willing to um, uh, to invest on a non-return or, or low-return basis, yeah, absolutely critical. Um, and the third thing, um, the, the vision um, that I think I would ask for is a kind of superpower for everybody, <laughs> um, which is the superpower of resilience because not everything will work. And if everybody had this, the resilient superpower, I think, you know, we'd all be able to kind of power through and uh, and get to a successful conclusion with these ventures. Yeah, I really like the superpower of resilience. I think that's very well said. So thank you very much. Well, Sean, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Yes, uh, sure. I've... Uh, I- my email address is s.n.fielding at exeter.ac.uk. So very happy to take calls there. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. Well, thank you so much again, Sean. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.